Welcome to Mortification of Spin, the casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to the Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm a professor at Grove City College, and I'm here with my uh, friends and co-hosts, Amy Bird, the housewife theologian, and Todd Pruitt, pastor of uh, PCA Church. PCA Church, yeah, yes. PCA Church uh-huh. in uh, uh, Harrisonburg, Virginia. I'd forgotten the name of your denomination for a uh, second. That's all right. There, but, that's okay. Uh, and it's a great pleasure today to welcome back to the program somebody for his second uh, second time. Uh, he happens to be still my boss at Grove <laughs> City College. He was hoping uh, to have returned to, to an ordinary faculty duties, but uh, David Ayres is still the interim provost at Grove City College and professor of sociology. Though I should uh, state up front that David in this interview does not speak on behalf of the college. All views contained in this program represent the the personal opinions of the three hosts and the person we are interviewing. So welcome back to the program, David. Hey, nice to be here with you. Enjoying it. Uh, what we want to talk to David about this time is uh, research he's been doing recently on the sexual habits of evangelical teenagers and young people, uh, some of which has already been published in a short form at the Institute for Family Studies uh, and as part of an interview with the the Gospel Coalition, but is going to be coming out, I think, in a longer form, a more detailed scholarly form in the near future. So, uh, David, perhaps you'd like to give us the the sort of the 38,000-foot synopsis of this study and why you think it's important for... Christians involved in the church, and perhaps particularly pastors and elders, those involved in in pastoral roles within the church, to be aware of your findings and your understanding of these findings? Well, first of all, it just represents a massive fail. Mm. The the degree to which um, our self-identified evangelical teens and young people are acting just like everybody else is, is... is is phenomenal. It's it's extremely disheartening, um, and uh, and and in the National Survey for Family Growth that I used, at least in the standard kind of a template that they use to divide the different major religious groups, uh, they separate the Black Protestant Church out from the rest of the Evangelical Church. Although many, I think, Black Protestant churches would doctrinally be classifiable as evangelical in a normal sense. And there, it's, uh, the reality is is even worse. And, you know, the fact is, look, we, we don't expect that Christians are perfect. We, I, I expect that when the problem in a culture increases, that we're going to also see more of that problem in the church. But when there's literally almost no distinction, when we, we can't see that Christians are even motivated uh, by a desire to to be in some ways in sync with with the Word of God and with the Lordship of Christ and all that it requires, and that not only the the practices but also the beliefs aren't in alignment at all, and then we look around and we see these major leaders, you know, falling by the wayside, uh, either rejecting the faith entirely or modifying it in ways that 
make it no longer the true Christian faith at all. And the, the point of the spear, the, 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 the center of all this is sexuality, sexual identity, and those issues, mm-hmm. then we have got to do some very serious reflection um, and ask what's going on and what needs to be done to fix it. And I think we need to look at most of what we're doing and, and, and recognize that it's failed. Yeah. David, I, I, I read through um, kind of the short form on the study, looked at uh, the things that you were tracking, and, and it, it was at times kind of shocking. It was um, disappointing. It was disheartening. As, as, I, as I think through what I was taught in my church upbringing, um, I was in the youth group of a conservative you know, Southern Baptist church in, in suburban Houston, Texas, large, large church. And we were taught regularly about the importance of chastity, about the importance of sexual purity. I mean, taught regularly about it. I think over time, what happened was, is because we weren't always taught perfectly, you know, I mean, sometimes I suppose some of the teaching could morph into certain forms of legalism in some circles. Um, We think about some of the downsides of what is sometimes you know, classified as purity culture. You know, we think about the Josh Harris thing and, you know, almost a formulaic approach. If you'll do these things, then, you know, you'll have the best sex of your life in marriage. You know, you'll have transcendental mind blowing sex, your whole married life. If you just don't do anything until you're married, you know, and, and all of these kind of aberrations. And then I think what happened then is that uh, youth ministers and pastors began to say, you know, we were we were beat over the head about not having sex. What we really need to do is just teach them the gospel. And, and so they started being told about Jesus, but not at all about the implications of following Jesus in terms of, you know, their personal life. Is, is that your sense? I mean, that, that, that's been my sense. Is that your sense that the pendulum swung um, and what we thought maybe teenagers would put together in their own mind actually at the end of the day actually requires pretty direct teaching and not just, not just inferring something. It does. I mean, it it, it involves direct teaching, but it involves direct teaching. That is not just a set of don't do this, right? Do this. You know, some of the, uh, I don't want to knock on youth pastors, but some, some of the teaching that I've heard about, for example, coming out of some of these youth ministries is almost like, you know, this young youth pastor leads his wife in there and says, look at my young, hot yeah. wife, you know, yes. hold off, hang on until you get married and you you can enjoy, you know, having sex with a woman of your dreams. And first of all, it's, it's not what marital sex is for. Right. Uh, and, and it's unrealistic there, too. I mean, it's, it's, it's basically building up these expectations and, and, and still continuing to focus on on this kind of sensation producing physical activity. Um, as opposed to really grounding. So first of all, do they start with knowing that God is God and they're not? Hmm. Uh, do they start with seeing that God is very big and they're very small, that the wisest person on the face of the earth is as nothing in terms of his wisdom compared to the wisdom of God, that they're, they're never going to love their neighbor as well as God loves the people around them and that their expectation, in, in other words, are they small and God is very large? Hmm. Um, 
Do they understand what marriage is creationally? Do they understand what marriage is covenantally? Do they understand why sex is attached to marriage? Mm -hmm. Do they understand why God represents himself so often to his people as a faithful husband? Do they understand why the culmination of history is actually a marriage supper in which the relationship between Christ and his church is ultimately consummated? in a giant celebration uh, at the inauguration of, of that particular uh, time. You know, do they see the big thing in which this whole thing is part of and in which those those so-called rules make, make perfectly good sense when you understand all that it represents? And then on the practical grounds, too, there's also very practical reasons why why God attaches sex to marriage. He attaches sex to marriage so that children will be attached to marriage. He attaches sex to marriage so that this will be monogamous and so that terrible things don't happen to human beings, so that women, you know, aren't left to fend for themselves, raising children on their own, so that these diseases don't spread. So we seem to kind of isolate it. So, for example, I'm, do you remember like in the 80s when the whole AIDS crisis first started hitting, then we saw Christian pastors using AIDS to try to scare people away from sex. Right. Right. Well, if you're not having sex just because I've scared you away from it, you know, that might be a kind of a good short-term fix, but that is not long-term where we need to be. Right. The, we need to be in a place where people are trying to have integrity before a holy God hmm. and trying to find themselves in their place in, the, in his order creationally and understanding that their ultimate happiness and fulfillment is really tied up in that. And sex has a proper place in that, and that outside of that proper place, it's remarkably destructive, no matter how attractive it appears to be on the surface. And I just don't think we've done a very good job of really giving them that kind of a holistic understanding and integrity. And the other thing, and I don't want to go on too long on this, but what kind of example have we given to them of taking taking it seriously ourselves, you know? Every time I see a pastor leave his wife for another woman without ever having his pulpit ministry interrupted at all, I just want to just go off someplace and cry because you've just communicated to the entire church that marriage isn't really that important to you, that yeah. sexual faithfulness isn't really that important to you. Why would, you know, we see the strong tie between church attendance in this, right? The, that where the church attendance is very strong, the sexual activity is, is, is much better right. uh, from a Christian standpoint and the sexual beliefs are much more likely to be biblical. Part of that is because, you know, you have to be in church to learn what's being communicated there. But it's also because there's grace that comes through those connections. There's support that comes through those connections. But one of the things is just that if parents have a lax understanding of something as basic and simple as showing up at church every Sunday, even when they don't feel like it, then why should a, why should a, an 18 or 19-year-old child of theirs feel that taking on the hard work of chastity and standing up against culture in this area is worth it? Mm. I mean, in other words, if, if I'm not serious enough about my Christian faith to get my family to church every Sunday and to make sure that they're sitting under sound preaching uh, every Sunday— then why should it, they take anything else I have to say seriously if it, if it requires the, any cost from them at all? In other words, I guess I feel that we failed them in a number of ways and levels, and we need to start becoming honest about how we failed. Mm. Yeah. That's such a good point. I'm taking all this in. Yeah. Um, you know, after reading your study and your report, um, I'm thinking, you know, this is alarming, and yet you kind of, you know 
some of this already. I see it. You know, my kids are teenagers. You know, I see the culture that they're in. Um, they talk to me about these things. Um, and so you're, we're seeing in, in your report how more and more um, Christian teenagers are having sex um, outside of marriage. And then at the same time, I get this uh, New York Times article that I stumbled upon about how the secular world um, in the millennial generation is having uh, less sex and delaying marriage for practical reasons. And it almost made me think, you know, even as a parent, like things that I struggle with are some of the practical reasons of, of having upholding this the right way and really struggling. You know, we encourage delayed marriage now in our culture. And you see that, you know, back and forth is in the church or not. But if your kids are going to college, you know, you want them to get a college education often before they get married. You'd like to see them maybe get their career established, things like this. But even beyond that, they're under our insurance. <laughs> right. I mean, this is incredibly oh, practical that I'm talking about right now, but right. we have good insurance. I want my kids to have good insurance. What if they got in a car accident? You know, what, you know who, who knows what could happen, right? So I'm, as I'm reading this New York Times study, kind of rolling my eyes at how, you know, when they are having sex in secular world, it's like, oh, they, they want to have sex before the first date to see if they're compatible or not. Oh, man. And, you yeah. know, we've horrified to hear our children talk like this, right? Um, and then some of the questions that they ask before entering a dating relationship with somebody now is, what's your credit score? Like, if they want to, um, you know, seriously pursue somebody for a serious mm-hmm. relationship. And so I'm thinking of how practical this all sounds, and which is horrifying because sex is something that's, you know, beautiful. And it's been reduced to this. But then I think of how in the church... That's something that we have to think in our own minds, too. Are we thinking too practical in the sense to where um, we're putting our children in situations that are harder and harder for them to understand what to do with their desires? Well, the delayed marriage thing is a huge issue. I mean, Mark Ragnaris has talked about that, and he, he almost upsets people by pointing out that you can't tell people not to get married until their 30s and then expect them not to have sex. Uh, Russell Moore in his book Onward actually talked about that, and he said that he knows for a fact that what a lot of, what a lot of parents are doing now is looking the other way mm-hmm. at the sexual activity of the young adult children because they would rather have them doing that than getting married because wow. they don't want them getting married till they're 27, 28, 29 years mm-hmm. old. But the fact is, in what sense is that a godly priority as opposed to you know, you're pretty poor and you really don't know what you're doing, but you're going to build a life together. Mm-hmm. And, and and you're going to start with an old railroad spool as a table, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and some cushions on the floor. And um, <laughs> which is probably the kind of place our grandparents started. Right. And, and we, we're just, um, when I was in Korea, um, I came up with this idea of having discussion groups. And we had high school students and seminarians and young people and parents and pastors who were actually sitting there. This is in Korean culture, which is very difficult for them to have these conversations. Mm. And they were talking about some of this stuff for the first time. And I had pastors telling me, I have never talked to people in my congregation about sex in my entire career. Well, I didn't know how much they needed to talk about this. But meanwhile, the young people, and I actually watched this happen, were saying stuff like this. 
you older people keep telling us that we can't get married until we do X, Y, and Z. And we're in our thirties before that happens. How can we not, mm-hmm. how can we wait that long to have sex? And, and I, I was surprised at just how blunt the statement was. And it wasn't mm-hmm. said in a hostile way. It was said in a pleading way. Like mm-hmm. we want to make you happy. We, we want to get married in a way that makes our parents and our, our elders happy. Uh, we want to live our lives sexually in a way that makes them happy. I mean, Korean culture is still very respectful of all that. Mm-hmm. And yet we feel this is too much for you to ask. You're placing on us a burden that we can't bear. And, and just one other thing I'll say quickly is there's a Christian high school teacher here locally that my, uh, my wife knows his wife very well. Just uh, yesterday, he said, you know, I know people think the way your husband's talking about is shocking, but the fact is, I'm telling you, that's, that's the way it is. What he's saying is accurate. And he said, what I see in the Christians in our public high school is these kids are living an absolute double life. Mm-hmm. Their parents have no idea. They've just gotten really good at hiding. Yeah. But the parents really don't want to know. And what, one of the things that I said in my Gospel Coalition interview is that we've got to start being willing to look in our children's closets and not being afraid at what we're going to find there, even though we know we might not like it. Yeah. And, and then we have to be able to engage it. And I think without, you know, in other words, we want to take these things seriously. But our kids cannot be afraid to let us know what's really going on in their world. Mm-hmm. I mean, somehow we have to kind of cross this divide and and get them to be really honest with us because, you know, some of these things and some of these behaviors that I describe in my report have some serious long-term ramifications. Mm -hmm. Um, And the amount of destruction that they can unleash on themselves is really pretty horrible. So um, look, if I've got, if I've got over 40% of evangelicals between 18 and 22 females, if they've ever become sexually active at all, if I've got over 40% of them have had four or more partners by the time they're 18 to 22 years old, that's just devastating in its, its, its consequences. Mm-hmm. And um, even if I'm just looking at it from a purely practical, pragmatic standpoint, if I love them, I somehow have got to deal with that. Yeah. It, it's not something I'm going to want to know, but I need to know it. And, and I, a lot of the reaction that I've gotten so far is people telling me why they wish I would stop talking about this <laughs> and why, you know, why are you telling us this, wow. you know, and it's either, why are you so hung up on sex? When are you going to move beyond that and realize that, that the young people have moved beyond that old way of thinking? Or literally I had one reformed Baptist pastor who, who, who left a long message online who, who basically said, you know, he had some good things to say, but, but the gist of it was, well, these people aren't real Christians anyway, because if they're real Christians, they wouldn't think like this or act like this. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like they're not our problem. Real wow. Christians don't sin. Yeah. <laughs> they are. They're your children. Mm-hmm. Right. So, David, I assume that you're not inundated with invitations from American churches to speak on this topic at the moment. <laughs> Serious question. It's, it, I know it's the answer, one, but it's a serious you know? question. <laughs> it's a really tough one. And um, one of the things, and of course, they, they weren't doing this. Entire, first of all, I thought Gospel Coalition showed a lot of courage. Mm-hmm. If you, you know from looking at that interview that they allowed me to keep in some some details that I, I would have a very difficult time in a group of 30 parents talking about. Yeah. 
some of this stuff. And, and the NSFG gets into real detail. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it gets into very specifics in terms of what did the girl do? What did the boy, I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, but that from a health standpoint, it's a center for disease control. They have to know that stuff. Right. Yeah. I thought they showed a lot of courage, but uh, one of the things that I made as part of the interview that they trimmed out was I said, you don't know how hard this is for me. The, the degree to which I, I go into a room and I, I'm really on the horns of a dilemma. If I don't give them enough detail, they're not going to know what they need to know and do what they need to do. But mm-hmm. then I really risk offending them and then they just going to want to walk out. Uh, and, and like my kid can't sit here next to me while we have these conversations. But I also know and I've talked to, for example, our Harvest USA person here locally is Jim Wiedenauer. He's just a fantastic human being. And, and just what I sense in, in carrying on conversations with some of these people that are on the front line. And I, I communicated with him about this. And I said, Jim, how about I talk about the problem and you talk about the solution? Because the solution looks a lot like what you guys are doing and trying to convince churches that they need to do. Mm-hmm. But they get very discouraged because they, they, when they really get under the hood and they find out how, how badly the church is compromised in these issues, and they keep finding that out over and over again, it can just be very discouraging, very much feeling like you're kind of fighting uphill. Uh, because I think that people are really motivated not to want to think about this and, and really to think there's something wrong with, let's say, somebody like me even wanting to, to study this, even wanting to focus on it as, as if like somehow I enjoy having to tell people this mm. stuff as opposed to like I'm just begging them, please, you know, we need all of us together t- to work on this, mm-hmm. you know, and that that's how I feel about it. Yeah. David, you, you talked about how you mentioned how so much of what was found in this study was disheartening to you. I wonder, was there was there anything that was particularly surprising to you? No, but that's partly because I've been looking at this stuff a long time. I will say that um, this this might sound sexist. I hope it doesn't. That's I fine. I'm fine with sexist. We, we hope it does. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. to wind. Yeah, we're yeah. fine with sexist. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, I'm surprised by the extent to which some of these young women are allowing themselves to be degraded by men. Yeah. If 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 I thought there was a young man anywhere within a mile of my daughter that wanted to get her to do some of the things that these young men are yeah. wanting those women to do, I'd I'd want to. Yep. I shouldn't say this as a Christian, right? Right, right. Yeah. I want to take his lights out. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, wait a second. Uh, you want my daughter to do what? Right. Do well, you if they would comply with that, then I'm wondering, well, even from just a purely secular standpoint, where's your sense of dignity and bearing? Mm. Mm. What is your view of yourself? Yeah. Um, what, why don't you have, why aren't you more jealous for your own, not only your own welfare, but just your reputation? But I think it's because this stuff has become so normal in that right. world that it isn't associated with the shame right. that probably the four of us would have if, if, if we were to have these things discovered about ourselves. Do you think that, do you find plausible then Mark Regneris's argument about cheap sex, that pornography is essentially presents women with the dilemma of either no sex at all or just cheapening themselves to be the objects of men. Do you, do you find that a plausible argument? Yeah. And, and, and if you take, uh, I, I use that book quite a bit. Uh, it came, it kind of came out just as I was finishing my book on Christian marriage and I used some of his arguments in there. And, and by the way, I was in communication with Mark uh, 
and I used his analysis as kind of a model uh, for, for a lot of what I did. He's also, his argument that why buy the, you, you may remember your grandparents saying this, right? You're not going to buy the cow if you can get the milk for free. In other words, cheap sex also undermines marriage. Mm. Um, and and I, I think that that's absolutely true. And the, um, what I didn't get into in the report and is, is dramatically horrible is the degree to which women are now engaging in relations with other women. Um, and that's been out there for some time. There's been articles in the Washington Post on that and elsewhere. And that's happening in the evangelical world to a degree that would shock the daylights out of folks. And I just didn't feel I, need, I, I needed to go there here. I wanted my focus to be a little bit different. But what, what, what people that are on the front lines of that are telling us is that women are becoming turned off to men entirely. Mm-hmm. Because between video games and pornography, um, they've become, you know, they just don't seem like the kind of mature men that you would want to place yourself under and, and spend the rest of your life with. Right. And, and so they're basically looking elsewhere. And, and that's been happening a lot when, when uh, some psychologists were interviewed, and I think it was the Washington Post uh, ran a, under the headline partway gay. And they were t- talking about the rising phenomena of female, female sexual relationships among young people, but they don't view themselves as homosexual. They right. just, it's just mm-hmm. like we do this now. Mm-hmm. And um, what they said over and over again was the male addiction to pornography and the kind of demands that men are making on women, partly as a result of expectations fueled by pornography, mm-hmm. have become a major turnoff to women. And frankly, I can't blame them. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you're saying that mm-hmm. um, you can't believe that they don't have a, more of a sense of dignity, some of some of these young women. and but But then the men themselves don't attach any dignity to their sex Mm -hmm. uh, who are addicted to porn and Mm -hmm. and not even just porn like i was reading an article about how porn isn't actually even the worst thing that you can find on some of these social media sites and she kind of reviews tiktok which is an app where you know kids lip sync videos and it's you know supposed to be all harmless and innocent but she digs deep in there and doesn't take her long to find all of these really scary hashtags that these kids are sharing um and you know the the language they use about girls uh thought which stands for that hoe over there Mm. or f girl i'm hottie you know like all of these words and sin even is one of them if that's the value that's being attached to you all the time but then even some of these hashtags are like hashtag anorexic videos hashtag cutter i mean these are what kids see. Hashtag suicide video. It's appalling what is being advertised. Marketed to kids. Marketed, yeah, yeah marketed to kids to be innocent sure. applications. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and what a great time to be reintroducing a sound biblical theology of the body. Right. Yes. And the dignity of the body mm-hmm. and, and the resurrection of the body. Mm. Yes. So the, um, we, um, and there's good stories in there too. So for example, when I look at my sons and I look at how they are and the kind of young men that they're related to, it's kind of funny because I'm beginning to realize that they're in a sense, and and I'm sure you all know folks like this are your own kids too. Women look at them like almost sometimes like in awe. Mm -hmm. And I've had people come up to me and they say, you know, your son is such a gentleman. 
Now, the, the surprising thing to me is that they are surprised. I mean, they're, they're pleasantly surprised. And of course, I feel wonderful about that. Right. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, wait a second. You know, why is it so unusual? All men open doors for women. Don't all of them. And you if know? you heard your son using one of those terms to talk about mm-hmm. a woman, I mean, how horrifying. Mm-hmm. Profanity like that in front of a woman or referring to a woman like that way, mm-hmm. or even thinking for a second that if they said something like that about one of my daughters, that they wouldn't have to suffer at the hands of one of my other sons. Mm -hmm. But that's the world we grew up in, right? I mean, we were taught uh, to really show a lot of deference and dignity to women. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it wasn't that long ago that women didn't even go to bars, you know, where men were present. Ice cream parlors. Yeah, yeah, you would speak (laughs) around women. I mean, you know, or, you know, this kind of thing was just unthinkable. Now, we don't have to go back to that, but what I mean is, it just represents a cheapening all the way around. Right. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I still to this day think about a conversation I had with my dad. I would have been 17 years old and a senior in high school. And it was on a Sunday morning. I can picture the room. It was uh, a Sunday school class. And this is a large church, large youth group. And there was a small circle of us, five of us. And one of the five of us was one of the girls in the youth group, very good friend. And uh, my, my dad happened to be hanging around with us. A lot of my friends liked my dad. And so, you know, we were all just chatting. And I was talking for a while. And one of the things my dad noticed is that I, as I was talking with this small circle of people, I never really made eye contact or engaged the young lady that was in the circle. Of course, I never thought about this until I got home from church and my dad pulled me aside he was very kind he didn't jump all over me but he just said todd i want you to know that i noticed that you never looked at the young lady never made eye contact with her and he began to just talk to me about how i i don't know if he i don't know if he used the word dignity or not but that was the whole point behind his conversation with me is that um i i didn't show her the same respect as i showed the guys in that circle and it wasn't because I had done something profane or anything like that. It was just something as something that wouldn't even register today was something that my dad saw and wanted to teach me about. Mm, that's wonderful. And and now you think about and, and, and this wasn't 1940s Mississippi. This is 1980s suburban Houston, Texas. But to this day, I remember that. And it, it's it stayed with me. But but. I, teenagers today, that's the, they don't even have categories for that now very often. And, and so the, the idea of, of looking upon somebody, looking upon a young lady and seeing her as someone who is uh, worthy of respect, someone who possesses inherent dignity. I, I don't know where our young men can learn that. I know where they should be learning that. I don't know if they are learning that. Clearly they're not. It's funny that, uh, and of course, we we know that their culture has been maligned and misrepresented now for probably a couple of centuries, but the Puritans Mm -hmm. used to be very direct about things like, you know, mate selection. I use use a lot of their stuff in my book. One of the things was, is that they they, they taught young men that they should be marrying intelligent, well-educated women that they could have really serious conversations with. Um, And that lifelong compatibility meant that these two people should be able to sit down and talk about things and and be interested in the same thing and grow as friends. How often do people talk about that today as opposed to um, 
well, you know, if you don't have sex with the person that you get married to, how do you know if the marriage is going to be any good? Because, you know, you haven't tried each other out. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Right. If two people love each other, that's going to naturally fall into place, especially when it's not all about sensation and thrill, but it's really about a covenantal relationship being lived out. But how often have men been told the woman needs to respect you and you need to be able to respect her? You need to actually be able to enjoy social intercourse with mm-hmm. this woman. You need to you need to be able to talk to her and respect her and value her contributions mm-hmm. and recognize that she's right next to you and you guys are building this life together and you need her corrective influence mm-hmm. you need her insights uh, you know you really need to rely on her and she needs to be able to rely on you and you need to be compatible that way I mean if we were talking about those kinds of things and they were understanding those kinds of things, what are the chances that they would be looking at these women as somebody that they would want to degrade sexually for their own pleasure or bragging rights? I, I think it simply becomes a lot less likely. Hmm. David, just w- one more thought from you. Um, w- if, if, a, if, if a pastor were to, to, to look at this study, feel overwhelmed by it, and were to just ask you, Okay, you know, Professor Ayers, you've you've spent a lot of time looking into this, thinking about these things, studying these things. Um, give me give me a couple of things as a pastor that I can begin doing to address this in a in a way that might be helpful for for my church and for our families. What what would you say to him? I'd say first of all, make sure you have high standards for the ch- leaders in your church. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you have high standards for yourself, not, not, not standards that are hypocritical right. uh, or that are unrealistic, uh, but where you all take this very seriously in your own lives and in the lives of any men that you appoint to leadership in your church. Yeah, that office bearers are actually qualified. They are actually <laughs> right. qualified according to the minimal standards right. of Titus and Timothy. If we just started there, we would go a long ways because, as we all know, that's oftentimes not the case at all. Yeah. Um, are you, in fact, really ensuring the commitment and involvement of the people in the church? And do you have serious conversations with folks that regularly neglect their obligations to their family and to the church to be vital members of that church who, who, who make this a serious priority in their life? Because that's, that's establishing the connection through which the blood can flow. And then from there, are, are you really having holistic teaching on, on the body, on, on holiness, on marriage, on creational types of things, on the, the nature and the relationship of God and, and his importance? And in other words, are, are you building doctrinally in all the areas and connecting them? So, for example, uh, it's not just about sex rules, it's about character rules. You know, sexual fidelity also involves honesty and respect for property and respect for other people's welfare and dignity, loving your neighbor. In other words, it's all a web of connections. Are you, are you connecting these things? Are you dealing with sex in isolation uh, from everything else and treating it as essentially rules to beat over the people's heads with? And then I would encourage many of them to... Um, Connect with ministries like Harvest USA and get folks like that involved in looking at what you're doing and, 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 and begin to really let them teach you uh, and, and start incorporating some of their ideas about discipleship and accountability I- into your church. And, and also then 
you're providing helpline for people that might have problems that fall outside of your purview or expertise. You know, if you have somebody struggling with transgenderism, you might not be able to help them, but you know, you, you can oversee their help and you know who to send them to. Yeah. And those people are biblically sound folks who are also, you know, deeply compassionate. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure there are other great ministries out there, but to me, the paradigm of, 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 a ministry that's been doing a great job dealing with this is Harvest USA. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. So I, I think that they, they need to really look to people like that. And that's why I say I, I, I have some general ideas and I've really been good at identifying the problems. But but what we need is people that have been implementing solutions effectively that are strongly doctrinally rounded and, and biblically grounded. And they shouldn't try to just do it themselves. Yeah. They, they should really be willing to, to bring in some support and get what they need. That's good. Well, uh, obviously this is a, a discussion that uh, could go on. It's a discussion that uh, uh, is eye opening. It can be uh, disheartening. There's certainly a lot of very sad uh, features about this discussion. And yet, um, we, uh, we don't want to be as those who do not have hope. And, um, uh, so we want to continue to prayerfully, uh, move ahead and to be wise. And as our guest has said, uh, biblical and doctrinally, uh, connected on, on this issue as we speak to, um, to our young ones and our older ones. Um, as well. Our guest has been David Ayers, professor of sociology at Grove City College. Thank you so much for being with us, David. Thanks for uh, having me. I, I wish I could have been here talking about a more pleasant topic, but well, <laughs> I, I really appreciate this a lot. Yeah, well we're, well, we're thankful for the work you're doing here and hope that it will uh, be used in uh, family, accessed in families and churches across the country to um, to be a part of moving towards uh, a solution on this. Um, if, if you're one of our listeners, we'd love for you to, to go over to our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you can register to win a copy of David Ayer's wonderful book, Christian Marriage, A Comprehensive Introduction. Uh, I highly recommend uh, the book for you. It's a, it's a wonderful resource uh, to have in your library. And uh, you can uh, go to our website and register to win a copy of that book. And while you're there, uh, remember that uh, Mortification of Spin is a listener-supported podcast. And any donation you make to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals would be much appreciated. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll be happy to speak with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin.
I got some funny ones too, and some quick ones okay, to answer. Uh, this one lady, this was an interesting one. I'm running for local public office, which I told her she shouldn't because she's a woman. <laughs> <laughs> but she said, um, if I'm elected, should I take the oath of office with my hand on the Bible? Which I thought was an interesting mm. question. I once heard Truman I've refer to up. Martin Luther as the Jimi Hendrix of the Reformation. I was wondering, what does that make John Calvin? No, I, actually, I think, I think I would have referred to John Calvin in that same thing because I generally have said that John Calvin was the, like the Bob Dylan of the Reformation. Okay. How much do you read a day? Both amount of time and approximate yeah. page count. Any tips for those who want to read more? Websites for Todd. How many, how many, how many tweets? <laughs> oh, do you here's read one. So Will crap. we be naked in heaven? <laughs> how, much, how many? How many Blaze articles oh do you read a day? Will we be naked in heaven? We'll be clothed in righteousness. Yeah. Um, who asks that kind? Of, I don't know. I get worried about when we have listeners who ask that kind it's of question. Trying to be funny. That's worrying. Uh, oh, here's one. How come the same guys who generally restrict a woman's authority and power? are also the ones who attribute almost total power to them to be able to destroy a man's reputation, integrity, and even soul. Who should we be mad at next? <laughs> it's actually at whom should we be mad at. <laughs> oh. Just to correct that. Oh. 